The following is a production of DifferentBrains.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Michael Alessandri, who in addition to being a professor at the University of Miami for about 20 years and the head of CARD, the Center for Autism-Related Disabilities at the University of Miami and Nova Southeastern University. He's also the chairman of the upcoming Autism Innovations and Global Impact Conference hosted by the L's for Autism. And that's barely the tip of the iceberg. Welcome back, Michael. Thank you. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing CARD? Um, we have so many. That's a great question. And right in the middle of the legislative session, you asked me that. So, I mean, obviously funding is a major concern and not funding just to have more money, but funding to serve just the sheer numbers of people that are coming to us every year. Give I mean, us an idea of some of the numbers. We have 11,000 clients, current active clients from diagnosis through, through someone in their 80s, for example. We probably have one or two clients upward of 80 plus. Um, we get about 1,000 new clients per year. And we really don't get a consistent funding increase every year. So we're having to serve, you know, significantly more people every year, pretty much at the same funding level. So it forces us to be more creative in how we deliver services. And it forces us to think more strategically about how to prioritize uh, services and assess needs. inadvertently discriminating against adults? Actually, I think we've done fairly well with adults. So the concern that I have is I'm less concerned about those that are newly diagnosed. I think they get pretty good support from us. And I think adults actually get pretty good support from us. In the last four or five years, we've really ramped up with our adult service programs, our social programs. We've had some endowment, endowed gifts that have helped us. We have some grants related to entrepreneurship. So we've done a little bit more, I think, than we thought we could. Uh, The the folks in the middle really concern me, the school-aged kids that are um, kind of in their routine, in school, probably okay, doing relatively, you know, okay, but not necessarily getting the best uh, that we know is out there. And I think we, you know, I, I worry about the kids in the middle, the teenage, the, the, from early elementary to, to the teenage years. I think for our service provision, we do pretty well early on and pretty well later on. And I think we do okay in the middle, but I worry that they don't get enough of our attention because, you know, adult services take considerable amount of time and energy and money and early intervention, early diagnosis or, um, takes a lot of our attention as well. So I would say, you know, 10 years ago, we, we really weren't as focused on adults as we should have been, uh, certainly. I mean, we all knew kids were going to grow up. <laughs> we all knew this wave of adults was coming, you know, but there weren't really any clear paradigms for how to, you know, create a world or create a service delivery system that would really support adults very well. So we had to, we had to discover that, you know, and in some ways, I think we're kind of leading the way now, at least in in, in Florida, I think we have innovative programs for job development um, or job training. We have innovative programs for social skills. We have innovative programs for entrepreneurship, thanks to a partnership with the Rising Tide Car Wash um, oh, yeah. founders. You know, they've worked with us on a, on a really important initiative where we're, you know, we have a three-year grant from a private family foundation. We're traveling the world, educating people about how to create businesses that emphasize autism as an advantage, as a key competitive advantage. And now we're building an online course. The partnership with Rising Tide has been tremendous because we've been able to take, you know, our vision for um, employment, which, you know, in this case is about teaching people that they can be entrepreneurs on their own. Now, there's some risk with that, right? Entrepreneurship's not easy. 
can cost you, you know, money and blood, sweat, and tears. But we do think that we want parents and family members and, and people with autism to understand that they don't have to wait for something to come to them. They don't have to wait for society to change. They can change it on their own. They have the power to do that. They have the skills. They have the talent. They have the vision. They just need a little bit of the business know-how to kind of get going. And so we're hoping that it, wouldn't be, it won't be for everyone, certainly. But we're hoping that some people will be inspired to kind of set forth on this entrepreneurship passion, uh, vision, uh, with the passion that we know that they have. That's great. You know, when we interviewed Tom Derry. Oh, you did? Uh, yeah, and it was. Okay. Uh, I didn't see that one. You know what? It, I, I was I was telling him that I uh, I was giving a workshop at uh, FAU. We had a couple of hundred people there, and uh, I was showing an example of Rising Tide Car Wash, which to me was exciting on a number of different ways because. It's an entrepreneurial model that can work, mm -hmm. where you bring you can bring in people who don't have autism. Say, look, here's a way for you to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. These people like doing this, and they can be very good and so forth. And we had a woman raise her hand and said, "Well, I think washing cars is beneath our children. My child is going to interview with Microsoft." And I said, "So I show them my <laughs> folks' gas station in Jersey City. <laughs> you know, my folks raised four kids in a gas station, and I don't think it's about that. I think like it's about in my Aspertools book. How do we harness whatever strength somebody has, let them figure out how to make a living at it, and maximize their happiness, health, independence, mm -hmm. safety, and help and each other social out." Social connectedness. I mean, the interesting thing about the car wash, and I've you know, worked very closely with the guys, so I, I have a few things that I'd like to say. One is, you know, who decides what's beneath or above somebody? Right? Every individual with, an, with a disability or not gets to determine where they want to work, how they want to work, where they want to live, how they want to live. It's not up to us to judge that. And I think it's a huge mistake for people to judge something as being too beneath somebody. You know, that job is, uh, it could be a final job for someone, and that could be absolutely brilliant or it could be a stepping stone to some other job once they have learned some fundamental job skills. But I can tell you in the car wash, um, those young adults with autism that are working there are not only earning a wage for the first time in many cases, they have created social relationships with people in their workplace that they never had before. They are going out together on their own, they're hosting events, not with the owners facilitating or coordinating. They have created a social uh, niche for themselves that they didn't have before. They have developed empathy for their fellow workers. People are, uh, guys are, are, are volunteering to go and pick someone up who might have to take up two or three buses in order to get there. They would never have done that before in some cases. So, you know, I just think we have to look at the job as not an endpoint. The job is, you know, the job is a conduit through which so many other things can happen socially, emotionally, behaviorally. And the fact that they're earning a wage, you know, that's pretty damn good too. You know, I think that's critical because now not only are they socially engaged, emotionally connected, um, part of a, a team of people, but they're earning money. They can now think about having a car, having an apartment, paying bills on their own. Of course, now we need to help them understand how to manage their money because they're making money. You know, but there are opportunities that are now created because of that car wash. And the other thing is it's a great business. I mean, they started when they started, they were doing 3,000 cars a month. Now they're doing 17,000 cars a month. So it's a good business, and it's a good social enterprise, and it's going to create opportunities for you know, hundreds of, of individuals who would have had a more difficult time finding an, an, an immediate opportunity for employment. Um, so for some, it'll be the end point. For others, it will be you know, the beginning. But so what if it's the end point? They have a job. They're happy. They're loving life. They're making money. 
I just think it's, I, I, you know, it, it frustrates me that people have that, that mentality because I do think we always make this mistake. We always prejudge. We judge, you know, who's able, who's not able, what's good enough, what's not good enough. And I think that takes away the whole point of, you know, self-determination. Let people decide what they want to do. And if they're happy doing it, be happy for them. You know, I think we're, we're just so, it's part of that arrogance. I think we just generally have as a, a society and as people and sometimes as professionals. That a very interesting and profound viewpoint. I mean, it's, it's all true, everything you said. And we, we tend to uh, want to dictate. You should like this, mm -hmm. you know, and and here, like I didn't know all those years that uh, my daughter's all her senses were hyper. Mm -hmm. You know, who knew? And you say, oh, you're gonna like this. You're gonna like the fireworks. <laughs> no, right. Well, <laughs> and, I think it's again, it's it's failing to step back and really appreciate the other person's point of view. I mean, we talk about theory of mind and autism, and yet one of the things that's lacking all the time in these discussions about what's an appropriate outcome for someone with autism is theory of mind. No one ever thinks to ask the person with autism, is this an acceptable outcome for you? You know, And if it is for the person, then we have to honor that. We have to give dignity to that um, and not diminish it in any way. I think that's a huge mistake. For those in our audience that you've inspired by this interview to go into the field, okay, I'm getting calls from people who are interested, in, and I can't tell them the spectrum of different levels of things you can get into and how long it takes. I can mm -hmm. do it for medicine. You know, you can become a this or that or a physician's assistant or and so on. But what is the least and what is the most? I guess if you say the most, I'll just say PhD and something. Right. You know. Well, you can you know you can graduate from college with a bachelor's degree in psychology, right. for example, and work as a behavior technician in a clinic or as part of a team where you're being supervised by a fully certified behavior analyst. The other option, you know, just above that, is we actually at UM starting in August will be um, offering a one-year master's program in behavior analysis. So that will be a one. Uh, one full year, uh, fully uh, programmed to the point where you don't have to take any courses beyond that year. So practicum courses, uh, classroom courses, wow. uh, and it's a master's degree. So you spend one year with us, you'll have your master's degree. At the end of that year, you'll be able to sit for the certification exam in behavior analysis as a fully certified BCBA. And that's probably the shortest path to the full BCBA because you have to have your master's for that. Um, but there are other pathways to meaningful work in this business. You know, you could be a social worker, you could be a marriage and family counselor, a mental health counselor, um, you could be a special educator, you can be a school psychologist. You know, obviously the longest paths are medicine. If you wanted to be a neurologist or a psychiatrist or something along those lines. For psychology, the path I took was four years undergrad and then six years in a doctoral program, wow. which included a year of internship. So it's a 10-year journey sure. you know and then it's you know the journey trying to get you know an academic position and maintain a career in academia I mean, it's not easy it's a it's a long journey so the phd is definitely uh with the md the the, the most uh you know the far-reaching kind of goal but you know if you take it systematically and you know you want to have a career in autism you know you just you just have to pick the path i mean i tell my students all the time the phd is not the be-all and end-all I mean, it's obviously a, a, a nice degree. It's very impressive on paper and sometimes in real life. But it's, uh, it's not your only pathway to having a meaningful life and a meaningful career. You can help people in lots of different ways. 
and some don't require anything, any degree. You know, you can really you know, be a teacher's assistant or a personal care assistant for someone in their home, you know, without any degree other than a high school degree. So I think people have to just decide for themselves what path is viable and feasible and, and then just go at it, go for it. The 10-year PhD path is a long one, so I will acknowledge <laughs> that, uh, you know, if I had to do that again, I'm not so sure. It's long, and it's also very research-based, so not everyone wants to be a researcher. Not everyone wants to do an empirical master's. Not everyone wants, everybody wants to do an empirical dissertation. Some people really just want to work with patients for the rest of their lives, and then that's a choice they'll have to make, I think. Uh, Larry Kaplan, who's head of the USAA, took me to task because in our 40-minute documentary that is you can view free of charge on our website, um, Asperger's Autism and the Square Root of Two, a neurodiversity documentary, um, he said, you know, I don't like that you said, I think labels are a lousy way to describe a human being because if we don't have labels, how are you going to get grants and how are you going to get everything? Right. And yeah, and that's, yeah. It's, and he's, he's right in that way, you yeah. know? Well, and as I said before, I mean, there, there is certainly a point and a yeah. purpose of, of having labels. But, you know, when labels become, you know, so restrictive and in some cases demeaning and, yeah. you know, somewhat demoralizing to the person who has the label in some cases, I mean, in other cases, there's great pride that comes with the label, too. Right, so there, so it's, it's a, so the the glass is you know not half full, not half empty. It's really just kind well, of well. It's, it's kind <laughs> of a segue to, to to what I'm trying to get to overcome with different brains is to get everybody to get rid of the stigma of having a different kind of brain because we don't want to be stigmatized for right. any of whether it's mental health issues, intellectual disabilities, or anything. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, when we interviewed Steve Ronick from the Henderson Behavioral Health, he said, Hacky, why is it you're not stigmatized if you go to an oncologist or a cardiologist, but we mental health professionals get better results. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's so. a good point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I, I, interestingly, you know, some, you, you said something that triggered a thought. You know, we have many, not many, but we have you know, quite a few young adults who come to the University of Miami as, as students, um, undergraduate students, and they have autism or Asperger's or some other diagnosis, but they, you know, and the parents are always wanting them to, to connect with the card center, to get the support from the card center, to be affiliated with the card center. And in almost every single case, these, you know, remarkable young adults who've been so successful say, I don't want to go to college and be part of the card center. You know, I want to go to college and just be a student. I don't want to be that kid connected to his, old, his diagnosis by affiliating with the card center. So the parents are frustrated sometimes that we don't provide those young people with more support, but they don't want that kind of affiliation. They want to be, they want to start fresh. They want to be part of the, the population of young students who are going to college for the first time without kind of being tethered to the, the diagnosis of the past. You know, and maybe it's still a relevant diagnosis, maybe it's not. But the point is, you know, they, they don't want that kind of support. And I could totally get that. That makes total sense to me. As a, you know, someone who went to college once and saw it as an opportunity to just start fresh, new friends, new experiences, without being you know held down by the past. So, but that's tricky sometimes because the parents, are, you know, <laughs> parents want certain layers of support around that individual when they go off to college, and and in some cases they would benefit from it, but they also yeah. get the they have the right to decide how they want to be supported. It's true. You know, we're seeing that kind of thing also uh, to a lesser extent. I would say at the you know, Boys and Girls Clubs of Broward County, which I'm a past uh, chairman, we serve 12,000 kids. 
and we're very proud we have a 90% high school graduation rate and everything. But a big thing is when they go off to college is not having the support system there. Mm -hmm. And you, you want to do it, but it's like they want to go off and get a fresh start, right. you know, where, wherever it may be. And then you get into the other things like the financial literacy. And, mm -hmm. and Listen, everybody wants to create the most prosthetic world for everybody who's ever had a problem at any point in their life. But that's not the world we live in. That's not the real world. And, you know, you have to appreciate that if someone doesn't want certain layers of support around them as they move on to this new experience, that they're going to have to learn through their own trial and error that they may need certain supports and then they have to self-advocate for them. You know, but I think I still always uh, fall back on the idea that we have to listen to the person. And if they understand that the support would benefit them, but they choose not to have it in that initial moment, we have to respect that and be there to support them when they're ready to receive that level of support. But to pressure them to put layers of support around them at that level, I'm talking about the college student who's been admitted. Obviously, there are other kinds of individuals along the way who might need um, someone to, to maybe impose a little bit more support for their own well-being. But in that case, I think we have to be more respectful. You know, they've made it this far. They've been admitted to a high top 50 university. You know, they've lived with their autism their entire lives, so they understand you know, what it is that they're living with, what it is that they need, what it is that they, they you know, might benefit from. And we have to respect their choice. You know, I think, for me, it's all, at the end of the day, all my work is about respect. And it's about just dignifying the humanity of individual people to make their own choices and, and determine their own path. Um, best, you know, we all have the best interests, professionals, parents, everybody. You know, but those best interests can become damaging if they are in direct um, contrast to the will of the individual themselves. So we have to learn our place as they move through life. And that's hard to do when you've been really involved from the beginning. It's hard to step back and say, you know, let the little bird fly. It's really difficult for all of us, for professionals too. I have deep, a deep sense of commitment to so many of my clients that I've been serving for 20 years that I want to protect them. But you have to also learn when it's time to, to just step back and, and be there to catch them should they need it. So. When I was fortunate enough to give a webinar for the AAME, it went to, I think, like eight countries and 36 states. Mm. And I was very surprised when we, it was like an interactive thing, how many of the individuals on there were... Um, transgender or thinking along those lines mm -hmm. and had a lot of questions in regard to uh, gender preference, sexuality, dating, um, the whole LGBT, you know, and everything like this. Mm -hmm. And what, what has been your observations and experience in that realm? Well, I think we see, you know, we see the range of sexual preferences, certainly among our clients. Um, you know, and I think that the journey is, is not necessarily harder or easier for a person um, with autism who discovers that they're, they're gay, lesbian, yeah. bisexual, transgender. Um, it's, it's the same journey. I think, in, you know, I think what's challenging is that there's not, there are not clear role models. You know, we, we, have very clear, we have very few role models even, I think, in the gay and lesbian community for the most part. I certainly, when I grew up, I grew up thinking, you know, no one would love me, my parents wouldn't accept me, my clients would never respect me, you know, my brothers would, would 
you know, berate me. I mean, I didn't really understand that I could have a fully, you know, formed, you know, life where I was contributing in a meaningful way and people actually accepted that. And so for a young person with, with autism, um, who also happens to be, you know, gay, for example, I think there are even fewer role models. I mean, the neuro, the, the typical, if you will, person with autism has Temple Grandin and so many other people who are, have been very public about their autism. But when you think about being autistic and also being gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender, I think we need people to, to speak up about that as well. Um, I know from my own experience, had there been a, a person, a role model that, that I could look to that had a viable life, you know, I, I, it would have been a great help to me along the way. I, you know, there was a lot of, there's a lot of emotional suffering, you know, back in my day, long time ago, um, with trying to come to terms with, you know, being something that you thought the rest of the world wouldn't accept or acknowledge or, or, or honor. Well, you know, I, so. I make the analogy, that's one of the reasons I'm pushing different brains, because to me, nowadays, to have a different kind of brain, whether it's PTSD or whether it's anger management or autism or Asperger's or, you know, bipolar, it's like being gay 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. You want to stay, they want to stay in the closet. Let everybody come out of the closet. Right. I want, you can't pretend that it's wired like, you know, somebody else's. It's I wired the right. way it's wired. Right. And as my daughter said, every brain is like a snowflake. Mm -hmm. No two are alike. And so that's true. Yeah, and I think if we, if we have, I think what you're doing is really helpful to so many people beyond the world that I live in, certainly, because, I mean, the idea that, what you're saying, the idea that every, all of us are unique, all of us have our own idiosyncratic brains, all come with value, all come with challenges, but all come with a tremendous kind of opportunity to contribute in a meaningful way to the world that other people live in as well. Absolutely. For our audience, how can they learn more about uh, the Autism Innovations and Global Impact Conference? Great. Well, the conference is all over the internet, and we're, we're publicizing it in every media forum we can. If they go to the L Center of Excellence website, they can, and I think you'll have a link to that on your site, they can look up the Autism Innovations Global Impact Conference and look at the program. There are opportunities for people to register with a discount. If you're a registered card family, um, you can register um, by typing in uh, family or card. I have, actually have to check on that. If you're a parent, you can type in parent. And um, there are many other opportunities for, for discounted rates as well. Um, it's going to be a wonderful, I think, um, transformative conference for South Florida. We really haven't had, I think, a, in my opinion, a high-level, really high-level scientific autism event in a while. I think we, we have great card conferences every year in the state of Florida. And we have other regional conferences for national associations. But something that's this dedicated to autism research and and the global impact of it is, is really pretty special. Michael, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. We've been speaking with Dr. Michael Alessandri, the head of CARD, the Center for Autism-Related Disabilities at the University of Miami and Nova Southeastern University, and the chairperson for the April 28th and 29th Global Impact Conference that the ELS Foundation is having in Jupiter, Florida. Michael, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Privileged to be here. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.